I'd like to begin today with a thought-provoking question. It's actually a question that we wrestle with from time to time here, and it's a question that drives me as a man, as a, as, as, a, as a Jesus follower, and as a pastor. And the question is, what should people think when they hear the term Christian? And if you're not a Christian, or you're not sure, or you used to be, and we have people that are part of our community, they're just exploring, the question is, what does come to mind when you hear the term Christian? When you hear, he's a Christian, or I met this girl, and she's a Christian, or I work with this guy, I found out they're a Christian, or some people moved in next door, and I met them, and I found out that they're Christians, what, what should come to mind when you hear that term? And last week, what we, we talked about the word that, we rare, that rarely uh, or, or is ever uh, said or comes to mind, and that is the term fearless. And yet we look back at our roots and we look back at some text around the one who is the epicenter of our faith, Jesus. And we saw that one of the biggest characteristics of Jesus is that he was absolutely fearless. And we even looked at some of those that came hundreds of years later. We looked at a man named William Tyndale who was publicly strangled at the stake and then, his ash, and then his body burned and the ashes just discarded because he translated the Old and the New Testament into English so that people like you and I could read it and understand it. And they killed him for it. And we talked about how uncertainty in this life is unavoidable but fearful is optional because our Savior, our boss, our Master, the one who kicked this whole thing off was absolutely fearless. And the first century Christians, they didn't fear illness. They didn't fear death. They didn't fear loss. And in, in, in fact, it should be said of us, because we don't fear loss, we're selfless. And we are rationally generous because when you don't fear losing something, you're just generous with it. It should be said that we are compassionate and extraordinarily generous because we don't fear loss. Now, a, a Christian, uh, as you know, we've just come to understand, a, a Christian is just simply a Jesus follower, a Christ one, which, which means if we are a Christian, it means that we, we should look like Jesus. We should look like Jesus, who looked nothing like us. And, and again, if you remember this from last week, this, this is not what Jesus looked like. Like, this Jesus is soft and gentle and very white, and that's, that's all great. But see, the problem is, is we get this image of Jesus that, 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 that Christianity, that Jesus was soft and fragile, and he wasn't. Therefore, Christianity should not be soft or fragile, and his followers should not be fragile either, which leads to this question. What's wrong with us? What in the world is wrong with us? Or maybe here's a better question, what, what went wrong with us? Because in the first century, when Christianity began, Christians were courageous, and for many, they were irresistible. I mean, the only reason that Christianity survived the first century and the persecution of Rome and the temple is because there was something uniquely attractive about Christians, because Christians were living and seeking to live like Christ. They were extraordinarily compassionate. They were extraordinarily generous and radically loving. And, and Jesus liked people who were nothing like him, and people who were nothing like him liked him. And in the first century, there was something about the community of Christians that was almost irresistible. They were fearless, even though there was so much to be afraid of. 
So what happened to us? Why is it that in 2020, when people, especially in America, hear the term Christian, that's not what they think? Instead, they think of a lot of things, but fearless is not one of them. And, and, and very few think compassionate or rationally generous. But why? Why is it somewhere along the way we lost our reputation as the fearless ones, as the confident ones, the deeply compassionate, irrationally generous ones? Why is it when Christians look around and they think about what's going on in the world or going on in their world, especially in our country in an election cycle, uh, and we, we, we think about who should be president, who should not be president, uh, who should or should not be in governmental seats. Why? Why is it that Christians are so polarized and so many freaking out? I'm sure that Jesus must look at us and go, what? You live in the United States of America and the wealth of the United States of America and you're, you're freaking out about who might be president, who might be elected to Congress. You're, you're freaking out about what the next four years might hold and what about the next four years after that and the four years after that. Have you forgotten who you follow? And for many of us, we, we've forgotten who we follow. Jesus would say, you, you follow me. You follow me. It was one who was part of a captive nation filled with governmental and religious corruption. Me, who walked into Jerusalem in broad daylight, riding down on Main Street, knowing that both the religious and the governmental authorities were going to have me arrested and tried and, and, and beaten and flogged and spit on and crucified on your behalf with no guarantee you would receive it. And you're afraid about what? And again, I, I get it. We, we said last week that we live in a time of unprecedented access to a 24-hour news cycle on mainstream and social media and that thrives on fueling and even creating fear and angst and division and all of it's biased. Left, right, it doesn't matter. Some of it's real, some of it's fake, some of it's half-truth, but our level of fear amongst the Christian community is kind of embarrassing. And if that's not embarrassing enough, wait till you listen to the verses that I'm going to read to you today because I want to take us into an extraordinary passage of Scripture. And this isn't just one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This, this for me, is one that I return to again and again and again. And especially, it's just one of those special texts that serves as a true north, especially during those times when I'm feeling overwhelmed or confused or unsure about what's going on in the world or in my world. What's going on with the circumstances around me or in my circumstances? It's a scripture that I'm just I'm crazy enough to hope that you will leave here today and it'll be one that you will take a hold of. And whether it's later today or tomorrow or next week, that it's one that you will lean into in the future as I do. Because it clears the fog in those foggy moments and it reminds me that I am not without direction and that I'm not without hope and that I am not alone. 
It's a passage so rich that there is just no way that in the few minutes that I have that I can mine it for all of its, all of its worth. So uh, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you brought your Bible, you want to pull up your Bible app and follow along. Uh, don't shop on Amazon. Uh, the interesting thing is uh, that in the first century, uh, this first century document was so important that it was taken, uh, collected, and it was meticulously copied and it was spread around because it was so important to the early Christians, the early Jesus followers, but we don't know who wrote it. It was primarily written to Jewish Christians uh, and, who were beginning to wonder these two things. Is it worth it and is it working? Is it worth it and is it working? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when, because it's beginning to cost me or there's so much at stake to follow Jesus or I've lost my job or my kids are mistreated because they're part of a Christian family. It's really tough. It's really tough to follow Jesus. Is it worth it? And is it working? Are we making a different difference? Now, again, here's the thing. We, we can't imagine this because we're, we're, we know the rest of the story, Right? But we need to keep in mind that 2,000 years ago, no one knew if this was going anywhere. No one knew if this was going to make any difference, if this, what, was, what was going to happen to this little group of people that were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. They could not have imagined visiting a country or a city like ours where there are church buildings everywhere on a different continent on the other side of the world, a place where most people who are married, they got married most likely into a, a place, in a place that was religious and primarily Christian, or that when people die, that family and friends would gather in chapels and churches that ultimately connect to Jesus, where they would go and celebrate life and mourn death. They, they could not have imagined it. There were no church buildings there was only this gathering of people that Jesus that believed that Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and that he proved it by rising from the dead. And they believed it either because they had met the risen Savior, or they had met someone who had, or they met someone who had met someone who had talked to the resurrected Savior, because this is just four or five decades after the resurrection. So there are eyewitnesses running around all over the place. But they had no idea. Are we kidding ourselves? Are we lying to our children? Are we throwing our lives away for nothing? Is it worth it? And is it working? So the author of Hebrews, he's writing to this group of Jewish Christians and saying, oh my gosh, is it worth it? Yes, it is worth it. And as far as, is it, is it going to make a difference? You're, you're, you're going to have to wait and see. So here's how the author begins in Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So that is the definition of biblical faith, confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. In fact, that's the definition of faith in general. So for any of you that have ever had a job, you have experienced faith. There was a day that came that you sat down with someone and they said, if you'll do this job, here's how much we're going to pay you. Here's how often we're going to pay you. And if you do this job uh, in one or two weeks, you'll get a check. And so you signed some papers and you went to work. You went to work confident that you were going to get a check, something that you were hope, hoping for, something that you were assured you were going to receive, and then you worked as if at the end of the week or the end of two weeks, you were going to get paid. That's all faith is. It's confidence. It's confidence that your hope is not in vain and that someone is going to keep their promise. So faith is confidence in what we hope for, the assurance of what we do not yet see. This, this kind of faith, 
is what the ancients were commended for. And then he goes back hundreds and even thousands of years. He begins to talk about all the famous people most of us grew up hearing about. He talks about Moses, Moses' mom, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Rahab, all of these incredible people. And he says these people were not were commended, not because they just came up with something and then asked God to make it happen. They were commended because God made them a promise, and then they lived as if God was going to keep his promise. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, faith is simply confidence that God is going to do what God has promised to do. And walking or living by faith is simply living every day for faith as if God can be trusted. Or live every single day for God as if God can be trusted. And that God's going to keep his promise. Then he launches into this powerful passage and he names all of these famous Old Testament characters that every single day they got up and they lived as if God was going to keep his promise. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. In other words, when they died, they still hadn't gotten their paycheck. They lived their whole life trusting God as living and, and trusting God as, and living as if God was going to keep his promise, but he never, they never saw God bring those promises to completion or to fulfillment. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Uh, for example, God said to Abraham, I'm going to create a family and through you, uh, through you, the unfathomable part, the whole world will be blessed through you. And Abraham never saw that fulfilled. Isaac never saw that fulfilled. Jacob didn't. The nation of Israel didn't. Moses didn't see it fulfilled. And generation after generation came and went. But there was always a core. There was always a remnant. Always a group of people that were absolutely faithful to God, no matter what was going on in the world, no matter what governmental authority they were living under, no matter what religious authority they were living under, because they believed God. And they believed that God was going to come through in his timing. Now, for me, this is so convicting. Because, you know, you pray on Monday, and if God hasn't shown up by Thursday, you're not sure if God's paying attention. You're not sure if God cares. And for some, if there is even a God, because I gave God four days, he didn't show up. I gave him an extension. I'm like, God, I know you're busy. There's stuff going on in the world. I know that me having a date this weekend may not be all that important or, or a couple more days without a job. I can survive. Uh, so I'm going to give you another week. And then God doesn't come through. He doesn't answer your prayer. You're suddenly still single or somebody gets sick anyways or you don't get that job, or something bad happens, you're still struggling. It's like, how can I believe and rely on a God that seems to be so unreliable and untrustworthy? And, and for some, you look at, like, like our, our, again, our government, who is or who is not in the White House. And, you know, I look at those on the left or those on the right, and they're taking us to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, the, this, other, this group of people that came before us are like, What? Your God's too small. Your God's too small. We, we lived our entire life. We lived our entire life trusting God in circumstances you can't imagine with kings and leaders and emperors and warlords and governmental rulers you can't imagine. And we, and we never saw God come through on His promise. We lived under religious leaders and oppression and never saw 
God come through on his promise, but we trusted him anyway. And then the author bears down on, on us as the readers. He, he, he says, listen, some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about, uh, around in sheepskins and, and goatskins and destitute, persecuted and mistreated. And, and if you're a God follower, if you're a Jesus follower, these are our people. These are the people, these are the ones that came before us. Every form of abuse and mistreatment with everything taken from them. And then he, he pauses. It's like he gets caught up in the moment of his writing. He's beginning to think about these people. And now he's on the other side of the resurrection. And he's thinking about these individuals that came before and how all these dots connected together ultimately to Jesus, the Savior of the world. And, and, and it hits him. He, says, he writes this powerful statement the, because he's thinking, what if they'd given up? What if they'd given up on the promise? And he says, the world was not worthy of them. Maybe when he thought about his own gripes and complaints and the fact uh, that there's times that he thinks about abandoning God because God didn't come through by Thursday or whatever my timeline was, and then he thinks about these people. He's like, the world was not worthy of them. And this is so important, that there was once a version of faithfulness to God that elicited heroic living. There was once a faithfulness to God that was awe-inspiring. It, it caused people to be so impressed they couldn't take their eyes off of this group of people because, yes, there were some things that they struggled to buy into and, and things they didn't quite understand, but this group, they're like the most awe-inspiring people they'd ever met. And over time, that group grew and grew and grew, and it was rich and it was poor and it was masters and slaves and men and women and children and Jews and Gentile and people of all races, and it grew and grew and grew. And it's why we are here today. And the author continues, he says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had promised. And then this part is for us. This part's for you. Since God had prepared something better, for us. That the reason why God did not do what they hoped he would do in their lifetime is because God was doing something bigger that wasn't just for a person or a people group or even a nation. It was for the entire world. And again, here we are. So he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and I just want to pause on that for just a second. Can you imagine how we must sound sometime to this great cloud of witnesses. It's like, you're, you're worried about what? You're scared of who? You're nervous about what? You're anxiety-ridden about what? I mean, forget the great cloud of witnesses. Can you imagine how we must sound sometimes and look sometimes to the Christians in Afghanistan right now or the Christians in Syria right now, in Iraq or Iran or North Korea right now, to the Christians that are crowded in refugee camps right now who don't know where their daughters are and, can't, and are afraid to imagine what happened or is happening to them right now. And they get down beside their cot on their knees at night and they pray to God and they beg God for mercy and yet they still continue to believe. Can you imagine what we look like to the, the young man that I stood with uh, last year as I stood on the other side of the world in the Muslim-dominated city of Janine in the West Bank that had been the suicide bomber capital of the region. 
a man who Hamas had put on their top 10 hit list in the Gaza Strip because he had been in the Gaza Strip living there teaching Muslims about Jesus. And it was the man that they had gotten out of the Gaza Strip in time, but not his friend who was assassinated before he got out. And yet now, today, he's returning back to the Gaza Strip. And he goes back and forth to the Gaza Strip to try and teach his people about Jesus, knowing any day they might kill him. And how embarrassing it might be if they were to hear us pray, you know, God, watch over me and give me a safe trip and help me find my car keys and help me with my cold and get my kids into, a safe, into the right school. In Jesus' name, amen. And it's like, really? Is that it? Not, not that there's anything wrong with that. Not wrong with any, with any of that. But is that it? It's like Jesus is going, okay, you, you, you remember. I mean, do you understand, the, have an idea of the price people paid for you to even know that I'm here? People who wondered, is it worth it? And is it working? And 2,000 years later, here we are. So he says to us, when we're overwhelmed with anxiety, when it looks like the world is coming apart, when it looks like our world is coming apart, when it looks like Christianity is in decline and people are indifferent or resistant and nobody seems to care about God or living like a Jesus follower anymore, uh, like, a, like a Jesus follower should, and, and maybe people that think your faith is somewhere between quaint or stupid or even a threat. Here's what he says to us, and, and, and this is the passage I referred to at the beginning. This is the beginning part of it that begins to give us a true north. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. He says, instead of looking at everyone and everything else around the world and blaming and being critical and getting upset and anxious and nervous, instead, take a moment, pause, look in the mirror and ask yourself some questions. What's holding me back? What, what am I allowing to distract me in my life from the things that matter most? Why am I not all in with my faith? What, what, what am I allowing to weigh and slow me down, to derail me or trip me up on what God wants to do in me or that he wants me to do, what God wants me to be? Maybe there are things going on in, with your life or the people in your life or your relationships or maybe it's something else with our, with our city or our country or along the border or the world and, and, and we, we want to rage and we want to point fingers and we want to blame. And, 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 but what are you doing about it as an individual? Because the light shines brighter the darker it gets. The more uncertain things are, the certainty of faith should shine brighter. So here's the question. Here's the question. What are you afraid of, really? What are you worried about, really? What is it that you need to throw off? And what is it that you need to leave behind in your personal life? 
What is hindering you from freely moving forward toward your faith and your following of Jesus, embracing uncertainty and moving fearlessly into whatever it is that God has next for you? For some of you, it's a holy discontent. We talked about that God's put something on your heart. Somebody needs to do something about this. What's holding you back? Especially in light of such a great cloud of witnesses that God did, in fact, as promised, through Abraham, do something for entire the, the entire world. And let us not forget something that over centuries, hostile and corrupt men, hostile and corrupt forces, hostile and corrupt nations and governments and religious powers tried to squash and they failed every time. And we are on the other side of that. What or whom? shall we fear? And then he leans in more and he says, let us, let you and I, let us run with perseverance. Don't back down. Don't give up. Don't tap out. Don't say it's too hard. I give up. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, that there is a purpose. There's a plan. There's a purpose to it all. We may not fully understand it in our lifetime, but we are on a path with a purpose. And we each need to stay the course and run with perseverance. And for our generation and the one coming up behind us, uh, this generation uh, of American Christians, we have a culture that's very specific to us. We have a very specific role to play. We have a very specific difference to make in our culture and in our world. We have a specific race to run. And the question is, are we up for it? We, we have a specific race to run in this area. As I, I say repeatedly, seven, about 70% of this city, which is nearly 275,000 men, women, and young people, in Wichita alone are somewhere between indifferent and hostile towards church and Christianity. And we can either join the complaint and the blame bandwagon or throw up our hands and say the challenge is too great, or, or in our personal lives we can live as, you know, God didn't answer my prayer by Friday afternoon, I'm just not sure. The challenge is, will we throw everything off and cut loose everything that's in the way of us having a prevailing faith? A prevailing faith that says, no matter what the circumstance, I can and will be unmoved in my trust in God and that He will do what He promises to do. Will we throw off every excuse of what we've been making, the ones we've been making? Will we join the people that came before us in living fearless, confident lives of active change-making faith. He says, here's the key, and I would summarize it just in one word, focus. In a world filled with a toxic news cycle that never rests, again, from creating and fueling and feeding fear and angst, in a world with so many options in our culture that we live filled with touch, strings, touch screens and distractions and just where we're all ADD, distracted 15 different directions every day, he says, here's the key. Fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on. And the problem with that is that for many of us, our eyes are fixed, but they're fixed on all the wrong things. Our eyes are fixed on stuff and safety and security. How do I accumulate more dollars? And as long as you're, and, and, and who can I blame for what's going on in our culture, in our nation, in our world? And as long as our minds are fixed there, we cannot run our race with endurance in the direction that we should run because we'll be distracted, we'll be scared, and we will miss our opportunity and our responsibility to be a light in our culture. So I will 
I'll just ask it. What are your eyes fixed on? Are your eyes fixed on stuff and safety and security and wealth and politics and social media? Or maybe there's a struggle with porn or the struggle that's just so easy to get in binging on Netflix because I can just escape the world over and over again. And and, and if, if you pray, is it praying primarily, small God, keep me from any discomfort prayers? He says, as long as that's what you're doing, you'll never accomplish, you'll never fulfill, you'll never experience your God-given purpose. He'd say to us as Christians in the United States or in any culture, you'll never fulfill your destiny as long as you f- fix your eyes on f- and focus on those things. You have to focus, fix your eyes on Jesus. That Jesus becomes your point of reference, your North Star, and that every single day, with all the anxiety and the fear and the bad news and what's going to happen next, that we would just ask the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? And how would Jesus respond? Remember that your non-fragile, fearless Savior faced down power. Remember, they didn't have to go find him, hunt him down, and arrest him as he was trying to escape Jerusalem. Your fearless Savior walked into the draws of corrupt religion and corrupt government, and he faced death fearlessly. Why? So that he could bring hope to the world, to your world. And then he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, okay, follow me. Follow me. Come follow me. So what would Jesus do? What would he say? And how would Jesus respond? I mean, can you imagine if just one day, if in our, just in our city, let alone our country, every single person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, maybe they prayed a prayer of salvation, just every one, every, just one day, every single Christian would say for just 24 hours, I'm, I'm just going to do what Jesus would have me do, what I think he would have me do. I'm going to say what I think Jesus would say. I'm going to respond the way Jesus would have me respond the way my fearless Savior responded. And I'm not going to let whoever is in the White House determine my response or if there's something not right in this broken world. I'm not going to complain and whine and wait for the government or anything else to address this injustice or this thing in life that somebody should do something. I will do something about it. I'm going to do what the author says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the one who ultimately fulfilled all of the promises of the Old Testament and all those that those promises pointed towards, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. See, crucifixion wasn't just about pain. It was also about the shame. And Jesus, as a boy, no doubt had smelled crucifixion before he saw one. Jesus, as a child, he grew up in Judea, and he heard the wails and the moans and the cries of pain. Along with the whole community, they understood the terror and the shame associated with crucifixion. He had seen what happens to a body after it's hung there for several days. He had seen it, heard it, smelled it, and then he walked right into it for you and for me. And then he says, follow me. Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, focus on him, fix on him, fix your eyes on him, who endured to the very end such opposition 
from sinners so that. And then here's the goal. Here's the purpose for you and for me. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will not conclude it's not worth it and it's not working. It's not worth it and it's not working. And I want to say a, a couple things as we move to the end here. The first is this. This coming Wednesday is our three-year anniversary. We launched the first of our regular weekend services on January 23rd, 2017. And planting a church, especially in a city like Wichita, is one of the hardest things you'll ever do. In fact, in, in our three years, we've had people that started with us that somewhere along the way did not continue with us. For some, it was because it was a lot harder than what they expected. And for, for some with a church plant, there's this ongoing drive to reach more and to keep growing. And for some, that's too much. Because our, our hearts don't just beat for Christians. Our hearts beat uh, like Jesus, the one we follow for the 275,000 men, women, and young people who, as I said, in Wichita alone are somewhere between indifferent and hostile towards church and Christianity and ultimately God and Jesus. And so we're working to become a church that they would love to attend and engage, but it is not easy. And for some of you, even you have wrestled with, is it worth it? And is it working? And I know that because I've wrestled with the very same question. There are moments where something like this, it taps into all of my deepest insecurities. And then I'm reminded, consider him. Focus on him who endured everything for you and for me and for all of those unreached men, women, and young people in Wichita so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And also, about this election year, I just want to say something to all of you who are 45 years or older. You don't have to raise your hand. Many of you have grown weary and lost heart. The reason why is because maybe you allowed your eyes to fix maybe too much on a political system or a political leader. You fix your eyes on the leader you do want or you fix your eyes on the leader you don't want. And maybe you think about the good old days, whenever, whatever decade that was for you, uh, or whenever you see the brokenness or the corruption or the partisanship or even the immorality that exists within our governmental system, you've grown weary. And you need to knock it off because you're scaring the children. The generation that is coming behind us is taking their cues from us. And here's the cue that we're giving. If we don't get the right person elected into office and keep the wrong person out, it is the end of the world. If we don't keep the economy strong, it's the end of the world. If we don't build a high enough wall, it's the end of the world. If we build a wall, it's, it's the end of the world. If, if we don't have religious freedom like my parents or grandparents had religious freedom, it's the end of the world. If we can't have the guns we want, it's the end of the world. If we can have the guns we want, it's the end of the world. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right laws passed, if we don't have the right policies, it's all coming unraveled. And that is just, seriously, is our God that small? Is our God really that puny and impotent? 
Has God at any point in history, in humanity, including the moment that his son was arrested and tried and tortured and crucified, was God's power and authority over anything displaced one millimeter? No. So why do we fear and act like God has fallen off his throne, depending on who is in whatever seat of power? Now, please don't hear me say, saying something I'm not saying. All I'm saying is what I'm saying. Government matters. Policies matter. Laws matter. But none of these matter as much as men and women who understand this word. Faith. Confidence. That God keeps His promises. And nothing and life or government or religion can hinder or impede or thwart or displace the plans of God. We know this from the Old Testament. We know this from the New Testament. We, we know this because the most powerful person in, in Judea, Pilate, the governor, looked at Jesus, said, what's truth? Crucify him. Game over. Let's move on. And the only reason you know who Pilate is is because he's part of the story of Jesus. So the most powerful man in Judea becomes a footnote in the story of Jesus. In fact, most of the first century people, if you thought about it, most of the first century people you know about, you only know about because they're part of the story of Jesus. We have nothing to fear. So all of you people over 45... You need to model for the next generation that God is the one that's in control. God can be trusted no matter who's in the White House, the Senate, or the House of Representatives. Get involved in the political system. Get involved in policy change because changes do need to be made. Get involved directly, hands-on, in culture, not just on social media, and be part of the solution in addressing evil and injustice in our society. That's exactly what we're trying to do in our partnership with organizations like ICTSOS and our work with Project Laundry, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and to, and, and to, to hear his call and follow him wherever he, he is leading us. Now, for those of you under 45, especially in your 20s and 30s, do not grow weary and lose heart. And don't fix your eyes on social media or mainstream media. Don't fix your eyes on Washington, D.C. Don't fix your eyes on my generation or the generation before. And here's why you should not grow weary and lose heart. And I really want you to hear this. Once upon a time, a group of people your age embraced a resurrected Savior and don't miss this. Those were the men and the women that changed the world. They did it through a faith that connected them to their behaviors. The author, he takes one last shot, just in case we're still hesitant. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. In other words, he's like, hey, listen, not a single one of you have had to shed a drop of blood for Jesus, and you probably won't. I mean, it's like, you're, you're concerned? Really? Step up. Fix your eyes on Jesus, because you've invited, been invited to follow the promise-keeping God. 
There was a whole host of people that followed God before he fulfilled his promise. You're on the other side. Now you live in a new covenant with a new promise of God's presence in your life, in this life, and that when you die, a life so wonderful that in, we don't even have the words in any language to adequately describe it, a life in which God will dwell among us and that every tear will be wiped from every eye, a life where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where the old order of things has passed away and that God will make everything new. You and I have every reason to live a fearless life, to be confident, to be generous, to live our life in such a way that people who do not consider Jesus, consider Jesus. Because they're in awe of, of you and how you live and how you treat people. And imagine if it was us, if it was our generation, that we would become a generation of Christians, that it could be said of us, the world was not worthy of them. And wouldn't you like to be a part of that? I would, and I do. Imagine a generation of Christians that when people thought Christian, they thought they are the most fantastic, honest, hardworking, fearless, confident, generous, compassionate people I've ever met. And they're all focused on this one thing, how to live and love like the man they claim to follow, Jesus Christ. So why don't we decide to be that generation of Christians for whom the world at some point might not consider itself worthy. We have every reason in the world not to try, or every reason in the world to try, and no excuse not to. So be here next week for part three of Tough as Nails. Let's pray.